Warning, Star Trek from the holodeck contains adult language and discussions. If you're easily offended, do not continue to listen. Walk it alone! Fire! Holodeck 3 program is reinstated. Open sesame! Commander Klingon vessel. We are energizing transport of him. Now. Hello, welcome everyone to Star Trek from the Holodeck. I am Michael Flores, the captain of the USS Rainman Digital. And at the helm is my first officer. He doesn't get a chair next to me. I don't like people <laughs> sitting next to me, so he he's at the helm. Hello, Dave. Uh, I, tr- I promise not to crash the ship this time, Captain. <laughs> yeah, like Sydney LaForge. Sydney LaForge. Crash LaForge. That was a pretty good introduction. I was, it a little, was. I was a little cautious about that type of stuff. I'm not, I'm not a fan of the kids of the actors popping into the same franchise they're in. It just feels uh, just kind of weak. Well, but they kept it you simple. You know what? It, there you go. They kept go. it simple. They didn't make a big deal about There's it. There's a thing to be said about simplicity at times. I feel like in this day and age that we're in with all these streaming shows, everyone tries to be overly complex and sometimes. You're just not capable of of complexity. So just go with the simple. It works. Although I, I'm going to, I hate to say it as a Star Trek fan. Mm-hmm. I was, it dawned on me. I'm like, like, is her mother the person that Jordy was stalking in the, in the, in the show? That'd be amazing. <laughs> it's the doctor that he was stalking. It's this the actual time. holodeck. <laughs> oh my God. That would be, that even be weirder. Yeah. All right. So we are back after a, winter hiatus we're officially starting our 2023 podcast season with Picard's premiere the season three premiere episode one titled the next generation we have a lot to sort through because this episode neatly pushed a lot of things into place a lot of intriguing variables yeah and we will get into all of them if you are a new listener to to us, you can find all of our shows pretty much wherever you listen to podcasts. Just search from the holodeck. Our preferred feeds are Spotify and iTunes. That way you can leave us reviews and give us a thumbs up. Also, you can find us on Twitter at from the holodeck and Facebook, facebook.com slash Star Trek from the holodeck. Okay, David. So things are off to a very intriguing start. Yeah. Matalas, as we know, the showrunner, has indirectly asserted that season three of Star Trek Picard was going to essentially realign Picard's story with the roots of TNG and Star Trek as a whole. Or in other words, the familiar. Yes. Something that fans can find familiar feel like a lot of critiques of Picard's first two seasons have had a lot of generalizations and also some little minute issues here and there that people have uh, voiced and some big ones. But the general, I think, idea that people can agree on is that Picard doesn't really feel all like Picard. No, that and that, that's been a, 
That's been a criticism for the entire show for the past two seasons is like one of the more unified one of the criticisms, more right? And yeah. And it's one of the more understandable criticisms too, because like since the very beginning, we all were told that we're trying to tell a very different and personal story on Picard. And I think they succeeded in that. They tried to actually yeah. get there with season one. And in season two, it really got there, especially when you put the right pieces in place. The ingredients were there. The execution could have been better. And yeah, that, that's what actually really hindered it in the end was the execution. So then news of season three started coming out. And, you know, I was worried that basically they're just going to throw fan service and fan service all over the place. And it, there's not going to be much substance behind right. what we see. I can actually comfortably say that for the first episode, I was proven wrong. Mm -hmm. There, there is stuff that they're putting behind. Yeah. They're putting the, like what you said, the familiar, the fan service type of moments in here. Well, is it fan service or is it just Matala's trying to align Star Trek Picard with something more familiar and okay. Let me think, let me say it like this. If Picard's story through TNG and the movies and Picard season one and two were a puzzle season one and season two, each as its own separate puzzle piece, they don't quite fit in that picture, the, the you yeah. know how when you buy a puzzle and one of the pieces might be defective from the factory, oh yeah, and it wants to fit but doesn't quite fit, so you have to force it. That's that's kind of the way a lot of fans have felt. Sometimes they vocalize it, sometimes they're not sure how to vocalize it, but essentially that's the best way to describe it. They're puzzle pieces that seem like they should fit, but they don't quite fit. But they don't quite. Whereas yeah. season three feels like it's the beginnings of a piece of the puzzle that will in fact end up fitting a little more naturally, organically with the evolving story of Picard and of course the D the TNG era as a whole. And I think that one of the biggest differences between season one, and season two, season three is not, placated by immediately by a mystery. It's not a mystery. Yes. There's like a narrative that we have to follow where there's questions we have. Yeah. But if you think about like the first two seasons, everything was built around a twist or a, yeah, a, well that also hindered discoveries first season. Exactly. And, um, with season three, the way they open up, you kind of can tell where they're going. This is their, this is the, this is essentially in one episode, they say the story is going to center around the relationship between Picard Crusher and the rest of the TNG crew. What happens to them? You this think, is their final, this is their quote unquote final adventure together. So you think this is the, the actual framing pieces? Yeah. Like not just the beginning. You think this will be the actual frame. Like I think the this rest is the, of the season will rely on everything here. Yeah. I think the, the frame is now in place. We're in like season one and season two. We didn't know what the freaking frame was. We didn't know what they were yeah. doing. Uh, yeah. Because I, was the framing in season one data? I don't know. I thought it was supposed to be Picard. <laughs> season one had a lot of disjointed aspects that didn't really quite sync up 
it was a fractured narrative. It was a fractured narrative. It wasn't a bad idea, but it was a fractured narrative. Season two was written better, but it was less exciting. Yes. As season one. Season three, I'm hoping they get right. And I would say, based on everything we've been talking about, talking about so far, I would say, based on the overall presentation of the first episode, there is a concerted effort to break free of the original concept of Picard and bring it back to its roots of Trek tradition, or at least the TNG tradition, particularly in cinematic form. Oh, yeah. So they are forgetting the original concept of Picard, which was the story of Picard. And they're replacing it. And if you need any more evidence of that, it's in text form. And it's the title of the episode, The Next Generation. Why would you start the episode off with that title? Or I should say start the season off with that particular title. It's to signal a couple things. I have a few ideas. Number one is the obvious. This is the beginning of the new story of The Next Generation. But also this can take us right back to things that were said off at, I should say, conventions and interviews leading up to Picard season three that there seems to be an allusion to the fact that there may be a spinoff of Picard's show. Yeah. So in essence, we could also be witnessing the beginning of a new, generation a new generation built on top of the backs of the old next generation. And that's how it should be. That's how it should have been from the get-go. But unfortunately, just as, he, just as we said, the execution just didn't work. Yeah. You didn't have the creative minds all working in sync like we do now with Terry Matalas. Because Terry Matalas... At least with Matalas, we know and can see that he has a game plan. It's not like one of the biggest criticisms. I know we always criticize Michael Shaban for season one, but the one thing I always said was the fact that he didn't know his ending. But he has said that. That's ridiculous to me. That is absolutely yeah. ridiculous. With Terry Matalas, we can tell that he has a game plan. He better. He better. Because he's playing with fire in the first episode. Yeah. Well, I will say for reasons that are associated with my own identification as a Trek fan, the strategy, everything we've seen in the, in the first episode, as well as the things we've heard in interviews, the strategy feels sound. Yeah. But from a more critical perspective, I have an alternative view that I will share towards the end of our discussion. And when I say critical, that doesn't mean a negative, but rather to simply bring the discussion into a more qualitative and interpretive realm of analysis where I want to talk about the postmodernism and narrative closure aspects that affect not just Picard, but all of Star Trek over the last, say, 15 years, including the Kelvin Timeline movies and the uh, Alex Kurtzman era with, uh, I should say, starting with Discovery. Oh, yeah. So if we have time, we'll get into that. I'm hoping because we're already 12 minutes in and we haven't even scraped the, <laughs> surface. the surface yet. Okay, so we've got a lot to discuss. But first, Dave, I was going to go directly to you to get more of a formalized brief initial thoughts on the episode, but I think you shared that, right? Is there a little oh, more yeah. you want to share before we get into this episode or did you no, say your as piece a, as a summary of like what I thought about the, it's obvious that what I thought about the episode was, I thought the episode was good. It's just the fact that I, I, I find myself a little hesitant now because you gave me one, uh, one in a, one 
really bad season, a okay season. And then you're supposed to make me believe that basically just after one episode, everything is fixed. Yeah. I'm a little gun shot. <laughs> <laughs> no, I get it. I think there's a lot of people that are with you there. There are some people who, and I envy these people who can just sit down and just be completely excited and stoked to see some Picard stories and next generation stories. Unfortunately, I don't know how to turn my, my brain off for sheer escapism. And I have to also have everything that should come with Star Trek, which is well-told character driven stories centered around the human condition and substance. A- A- yeah. AKA substance. So if that's going to be a part of season three, then I, I have no problem with that. Cause I feel like the first two seasons, second season got into it a bit with the trauma. No, they got into it a lot. The second season, that's why I didn't have a problem with the second season. Like a lot of people did. Cause I felt like the, the things that need to be there for star Trek were there. season one just felt like they weren't sure what to do, but all right, let's, let's forget all that. Let's, let's look at the future. Let's not live in the past. I want to be positive. I want to be happy. So <laughs> let's start things off. So this episode titled the next generation was directed by Doug Arnio Koski and written by Terry Matalas. The synopsis after receiving a cryptic urgent distress call from Dr. Beverly Crusher, Admiral Jean-Luc Picard enlists help from generations old and new to embark on one final adventure, a daring mission that will change Starfleet and his old crew forever. So before we get into instances of plot, I want to talk about writing and directing. Matalas did an excellent job with this script. I will just say that right from the get-go. There was just the right amount of time spent with each of our core Picard cast. There's a difference. Seven, Raffi, and Picard. And that's one thing that was a huge strength for me. Because what did I say, Dave, before we started this season? Behind closed doors, when the mics were off, I said my biggest problem with all of these ideas is that they're changing the entire concept of the show are the next generation cast now going to supersede or overwrite the characters that they were introduced because they already got rid of 80% of the Picard cast between season one and season two. And the only ones left are seven and Raffi. And look what they did. Most of the story Riker was a clinger honor. Yes. He was a part of Picard. Seven had her own thing going. Raffi had her own thing going and no doubt they're all going to come together. They're going to converge. And Picard has his thing. So the three core characters of Picard were the ones leading. They were the, the narrative powers. Yes, the narrative ties. They were the narrative ties. Yes, they were the one pushing the plot forward. And that was a huge plus for me because it shows me that Matalas wasn't about throwing everything out. It was about just say, hey, listen, we're going to introduce new TNG elements. But hey, we know what the show is. It's still Picard and including with that the cast of Picard. So I like that quite a bit that it revolved around seven Raffi and Picard, each functioning as narrative anchors positioned in the right way in order to disperse an adequate amount of story and flesh out new ideas and situations. Well, that was the amazing thing about this one episode was no character was wasted. No, like the problem that I had with season one and season two was you had so many characters 
and they all were just wasted. They didn't do anything for the narrative. A lot of them didn't really have purpose. They didn't have purpose. Here, you took the three characters of Picard the past couple seasons, and you basically made each one important to the story. Every character. The the amazing thing was that I give Matalas a lot of props for was the way he uses Rafi. Rafi is not done to do a poignant personal story. Her point in this story is to actually introduce us into the threat. That is the threat. The whole, the whole premise of the weapon and getting to see the, what the weapon is that we should be afraid of. That was Rafi's story. That's her importance. It's, it's not, Oh, we need to do a story about Rafi's relationship with seven. No, that's in the background or a son or a son that we see once and has no real bearing on the story. Exactly. Yeah. You know, you're right, Dave, every single, but that was my point with how well the script was written. Mm -hmm. The fact that it revolved around our three lead characters. That's how a fucking TV show should be written. written. And, and they did it perfectly. Also, Doug, the director, Arnie Olkowski, Orkoski. Orkoski, I think. It's Arnie Arnie Okoski. Yeah. His directing emphasized personality. Charm and the larger sequences, you know, working in tandem with the writing, it all alluded to a much bigger story world or diegesis that didn't feel purposely elusive, but adequately constrained for purposes of mystery. So Mm -hmm. there was not the attention to keeping things closed. That was one of my, my, also my issues that I've had since season one. If people go back, if you don't know what I'm talking about, there's this attempt to create this, a constrained view of the world. Yeah. Whereas this through directing and of course the writing It shaped a larger scope. We were able to see things differently. We saw the functions of the bridge on the USS Titan. We weren't secluded to one specific portion, which, you know, I have my own problems with that. A lot of that has to do with the fact that they're only building, you know, half sets nowadays with virtual production. So I like that as well. And lastly, another highlight was... Thank God we were able to actually see the USS Titan. Yes. And I'm not talking because we've never seen the Titan before. I'm talking about the bullshit visual effects that has become a plague on many modern television shows, Picard in particular, where they hide every effect with light blooms, blown out camera lenses, and we never actually see the crisp, the crisp starships. Clear. Yep. If you compare the starships that we get to the things from yesteryear, next generation, deep space nine Voyager, there was a clarity, clear defining angles on the vessels that weren't blurred out with visual effects. We actually saw USS Titan and all its glory Emerge from space dock, which was awesome with no visual effects bullshit to muddle the image. Yes. And you, Did you notice that? Oh, absolutely. This is the first time that we've gotten to see a star Trek, uh, honestly getting the real feel of the star Trek 
universe because of the we finally got to see a ship and it felt right it felt right especially when Riker kind of looks at it and says hello beautiful yeah and I'm like going you're damn right that's your ship <laughs> and I know it's a little referential we've seen these scenes before in all of Star Trek where you're in space dock or you know you leave in star a star base and they put a lot of emphasis on taking taking her out I'm okay with stuff like that because it has become a part of Star Trek to see your vessel for the first time in all its glory, leaving space dog and, and flying into the stars. So that just felt right. So going back to what Matala said about wanting to capture the original feel of the Star Trek films, he did it with that very scene right there. Mm -hmm. I'm going to turn the TV off, Dave. Why? What's wrong? You are watching it and not listening. <laughs> Fucking David. No, I wasn't watching it. I have a TV up that plays Star Trek 24 hours a day and he's watching this. You know, I have the camera on you. I saw you. <laughs> Jesus Christ. Anyways, uh, visual effects were great. I oh, yeah. didn't have a problem with them. And that is, that's a problem that I've had even with discovery. Well, dude, think about like the one criticism. Remember the, remember the criticism we had with like how they treated ships I in, want to see a fucking in the first, ship. Yeah. But even like in second season, we were like going, man, I hope we can finally see a ship. And even though they did to some degree, it was always kind of masked. It was always kind of hidden. It never like, you never really got a gravity of it flying through space. Here, we finally got to get our Star Trek. Actually, I, I don't know if it's a bad thing to say, but the stereotype stereotypical Star Trek scene where we get to see the ship yeah, David, fly through space. I, I just said that. And that's why you weren't listening. That's why I had to turn the TV <laughs> off. You motherfucker. <laughs> I'm just reaffirming it. <laughs> oh man. I can't even get my co-host to listen. How, how do I expect <laughs> the listeners to pay attention? <laughs> It's a long night. <laughs> so just to close out this particular segment here, if if listeners out there aren't, aren't sure what we're talking about, Dave, all you have to do is flip on any Star Trek from the Kurtzman era. And mind you, I have liked 80%, if not more, of the Kurtzman era. Yeah. One problem that keeps coming back is the fact that Discovery doesn't do it as much, but they have their moments where they, they just muddle these beautiful spacescapes with blurred effects. It's an epidemic on television specifically, and it has to do with lower budgets and not having the confidence in your visual effects to just show it. So you have to hide it and mask it. And the reason why I say this, is because I know that I've, I've worked in visual effects. You learn how to mask some of your effects when you don't have the budget of say a Marvel film. Well, the thing that also baffles me, though, like I know we we tried to defend Discovery because of their budget, but look at look at Strange New Worlds. Strange New Worlds was able to pull it off, dude. Yeah, but they and their also, budget is not that high. They definitely showed the Enterprise a lot more, but also Dave, go back and the scenes have that blur blown out effect. It still has the you know that yeah I, <laughs> the ghostly I effect. Don't, the ghostly effect. I don't like it. It's awful. It is being used in so much TV now, but they pulled back with the USS Titan. Yeah. And that made me happy. All right. So let's talk about Dr. Crusher. This was a big thing. 
Oh, dude. First off, yeah. how sad. No one's seen or heard from her for, for over 20, <laughs> 20 years. years. She cut herself off from every one she knows. Although I, me and you have talked about it off air. I think she has a good reason. She well, has a good reason okay, for well, it. We'll get into that, Dave. So one big reveal already in the first episode was that she has another kid. <laughs> and he's not nearly as annoying as Will. Yeah, <laughs> sorry, <pleasure>. Will. <laughs> sorry, Will. You've been replaced. <laughs> yeah. So the internet's a, a buzz with this, and most people are are saying what you had said off air, Dave. Yeah. And it's, I mean, it's an easy theory to go with, right? He's Picard's son. He's Picard's son. Absolutely. I mean, because they did make it a point to remind the audience that they did have an on again, off again type of thing. Yes. So, and that's why that's why I'm like going, it's by far his kid. Well, David, if it is, I would be okay with that. I'm not a big fan of, Hey, you get a surprise kid. I just, it worked with star Trek too. Yeah. You know, with, with David and Carol Marcus, it, that worked just fine. But in general, when it comes to movies doing surprise kids, it, it, it screams of melodrama from soap operas. It does. But I think in this regard, it makes sense. Well, that's what I was going to say. It, if it is his son and this is to believe that this is the f- true final season of Picard, which is essentially ending his story, even though we know he'll probably back, be back in some form uh, if you want to believe the, the interviews. If you're closing out a show called Picard and a lot of it has had to do with his legacy, his life after Starfleet and the amazing closure we had with his familial trauma connected to his mother, which was the strength of last season was so good. We finally learned why Picard is so shut off emotionally, emotionally. If they were to now give him the very thing he lost way back in generations, a legacy to continue on the Picard name. And then if you remember, what did he say at the very beginning of the episode to his girlfriend? I don't need a legacy with a little smirk. He just needs, he wants a new adventure. They brought that up purposely. So if this is his son, that's going to be his legacy. They're going to hopefully bring that into the, 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 the emotional aspects as you're building out Picard this season. Yeah. That'd be a great way to keep the show personal. They have to keep it personal because that's the one consistent thing besides the character himself, Picard from season one and now to season three. And yes. it's the fact that we learned something a, a little season one was a little messy, but it did deal with his trauma still with the Borg. Yes. It felt a little bit like first contact take two, uh-huh. you know, like, Hey, we're going to, you know, we dealt with your trauma, but we're going to reiterate, reiterate and remind people. what we, what we already know. Yeah. But it still dealt with him and his problems. Season two built on that and then dissected a, an issue that we had known about him since day one, since his introduction in encounter at far point, we understood that he was very closed off. Yes. So now third season, we introduce this element. We have to have something of, of a person of, 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 uh, of a personal nature to him of a personal nature. That's what we have to have. And if it's this kid, I think that works. Oh no. Yeah. Because like even narratively going from the story of like, I will never, I will never forget that moment between him and Q in the very end of season two, where Q is telling him the importance of him, not just 
you know, the fact that Picard was chosen by Q. It's just the fact that how close they are and how close Picard could be to people. He chooses not to. And then, you know, it's not until you have to say goodbye to him that you, tr- you tr- uh, Picard truly realizes, you know, all the bonds he's made by the end. And then carrying that on, at first, I thought that that was actually a clever detail of Matalas to kind of show, hey, he's not, uh, the character of Picard's not forgetting what just happened in season two. Yeah, exactly. And just like what you said, it just flows perfectly. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So there's a, a lot of other things, theories about Dr. Crusher, but it's all sheerly conjecture. So I don't really want to get into all of it. Unfortunately, yeah. After one episode, the only thing we can do is actually kind of assume or guess or speculate actually of like what's going to happen or what's her point in the story. I honestly think that if they did, if this, if this is the actual focus is like focusing on the relationship of Picard and Beverly, why they could never become be together. I have to Picard's, you know, um, own social social anxiety trauma story that we got going. I think that that's the best way to carry on what, why Beverly's here. Yeah, I agree. I will say that Gates McFadden looks amazing. Yeah. She's 73 years old. She looks, is that why we didn't have Troy? (laughs) How dare you? (laughs) She's aged so well. She did. Yeah. And the, the amazing thing by far is like, I, this series has show has to show people age does not matter. You, as long as you got the acting chops, you should be able to actually pull off. Oh, I thought you meant when it comes character. to sex. Well, that too, because well, come on, eight, let's face well, 18, it. I, Gate, 18, the opposite doesn't matter. <laughs> opposite doesn't matter. But Gate, if decreased if age the, does matter, increased age does not. Yeah. <laughs> if, if you had the choice, Gates McFadden. Oh, I, I'm sure you would jump at the opportunity. I, I would definitely take her out on a date. <laughs> date that's it come on mike go for the go for the touchdown i, I, I don't want to be obscene I'm, I'm turning over a new leaf in 2023 at least until we get to seven and nine then you know, i'll throw all that out the window just test her flexibility out you know come on see what's underneath the doctor 73 i don't think she has uh flexibility dave you could carry her that <laughs> I've seen porn, Mike. I've seen some stuff done. <laughs> no, but she does look great. She does. I was, I was impressed. It's nice to see her back on the screen too. Her, uh, uh, and also like, I'm really surprised how well all the actors have looked. That's why I'm like so nervous about seeing Brett Spiner <laughs> because he has to play Laura again. And I'm like, mm, like I'm not, he's not going to pull this off. He can't. <laughs> There's no way. He does. I mean, Brett Spiner is aged. We've seen unless, it already. Unless his consciousness has possessed. <laughs> what's his name? Anigo. Anigo. Yeah. Anigo bullshit. Soon. Oh, dude. But if I, I will say this right now, if that happens, you're the one who called it. It wasn't me. <laughs> dude, it's so hacky though. But if they do it right, it could work. They have to do something. They can't just ignore his age. That because even Data in the first season. I love the sequence between him and Picard at the, at the end of the, of the season. Oh, the, I it, mean, it was yeah, so that was a heartfelt. It's a heartfelt. It, it was so good, but it was hard to swallow 
the fact that data you're trying to sell this off as if data's never aged and the yeah. dude looks bloated. I, like that sounds really bad, uh, but, but it's true. Not bloated. Like most of us, as we get older, we, we gain some weight in the face. He looks, he doesn't look all slender like he a young look, man. It's yeah. obvious he's 40 years older. So they, but the thing and the thing that sucked was they never really explained it. Not like, you know, Q me and you had that problem with, Q coming back. Oh, that I mean, was I called that. John Delancey's gonna. Did have I not call off. that? But yeah, how they were gonna explain it? It made sense and it worked. Yeah, but that's because Q can do this. Yep. I don't know how they're gonna explain the Lord thing. We'll see. All right, so Riker and Picard together again. If you're going to bring in a character like Riker, okay, it's got to be more than just simply the. Yeah, the nostalgia feels because yes, as a Star Trek fan, I was so happy to see them side by side. It did get me really giddy, but also just like we said, if you're getting introduced characters, they got to have a point, which Riker does have a point. Yes, he does. But also, don't bring Riker out of mothballs. It's been twenty some years, roughly, right since mm-hmm. the last time we saw him on screen. Well, besides besides the the little bit part he played in the first season, but. Obviously, he's going to be a major factor in this season. Don't bring him in just to be plot motivation. Give him or at least give his story some substance. And the fact that they alluded to this idea that he's having problems at home. I'm so happy you actually caught that because I was was worried that people would not notice that. The reason why I noticed it is because I was happy. I was like, good. You're going to work something out for him to give him more depth because Riker has always been the, the care. I feel like he was always the the character that the young kids could like, you know, he's the good looking cool guy that gets the ladies, but he was never really the star. I know now, in fact, they said it in an interview recently, Oh, Star Trek next generation has always been ensemble. Yeah, possibly on paper, but the leads have always been, especially in the movies, Brent Spiner's Data and and Patrick Stewart's Picard. Yeah. Those have always been the most popular characters, and that's why when you move into the movie form, you're going to have to use those characters' popularity in order to sell movie tickets, to get people's asses in seats. So that being said, we haven't really seen real depth being added to Riker since the actual next generation show. Riker was more of just plot motivation and background in most of the movies. Yeah. He had great moments, but that's what they were. And that's also the nature of a movie. So I understand, but if you're bringing him back into a 10 part series, let's give him some fucking substance. Let's build out his story a bit. Oh yeah. That's why I was a little worried when they introduced the Titan and Riker because if unless you're like a hardcore Star Trek fan, you don't know that story of the Titan. But they did mention it in but the they final mentioned movie. It. Exactly. And like at least they made it plausible. The way they actually treated it was just like what you said, it it created a mythos behind Riker. So that in my opinion, if you're like a mass audience, you'll be like going, Hey, what's that all about? Mm-hmm. Why why would they talk about Riker's time with this ship? Well, now you can go back and you actually see, hey, there was actually stories done in book form yeah. of of the Titan with Riker as the captain. Not canon, though. Uh, 
Yeah. And if you get sold on, I mean, listen, you can, I enjoy, I read Star Trek books all the time and they're not canon. And they're not But canon. just don't get sold on ideas because they're not going to matter if the TV shows or movies come in and, you know, use a wrecking ball. But the concept overall is there. We yeah. know that he had this deep connection with this ship. Yeah. And that's, that, that's the important part is like, they just don't play, play it like simple fan service. Like, Oh, only fans are going to understand this. Who cares? No, they, they gave the casual viewer enough background to understand that to he understand, was once the yeah. captain of the Titan. And like that, that was the important part for me is like, as I said earlier, don't make this, don't make the season just fan service, fan service, fan service. Give us a narrative that we can get behind. Give us a story. Yep. And, and Riker's story, dude, I don't know where they're going to go because they have to still tie his narrative to Picard's in some way. And we know well, Troy course, does yeah. come back. Well, his story is already by default associated with Picard. But when it comes to the actual substance, I think substance. the stuff with Deanna is just going to be icing. Like, I'm not saying she's not going to have a point. I'm sure she'll have a point as well. But I'm talking about whatever problems he's having domestically. I'm sure we'll just be there to underline or underscore their appearance here in this season to bring more substance as we've been discussing. I don't think it's going to be this element that veers off into its own storyline. That would be horrible in a 10 part series where you have nine characters essentially. Yes. Yeah. They won't do that. And we don't need that. We just need, as I said, we just need something because it's been over 30 years since we've been given, given something of true value and merit when it comes to Riker's personal development as a character. Okay, so let's talk about Seven of Nine. <laughs> it, was, it, it was nice to see her on the bridge of the Titan as first officer. We had assumed, I think a lot of us assumed that she was going to be the captain. But she's just the first officer, at least for now. At and least for now. And for purposes of story, it was equally nice to see that it hasn't been a smooth transition. We like problems, David. We're not like most fans. We like our <laughs> we characters like our to be thrown through the ringer. We like chaos. That's what makes for interesting characters. So I'm glad it wasn't a smooth trans transition. This is the seven we expect to see. If you're a Voyager fan, if you're a Voyager fan, yes. someone who finds it difficult to conform to situations that feel constraining, that is literally one of the key aspects to seven story in Voyager. Oh yeah. She's always done her best work as seen on Voyager when Janeway gave her freedom to explore her individuality and creativity and to see that Captain Shaw stifles creativity. No, he just doesn't stifle it. He stamps it out. <laughs> But it works for who Seven is. And this has been my complaint about Seven in Picard since day one. Season two did a lot better job realigning Seven with who she actually is as opposed to who Shaban thought she was in season one, which was I didn't recognize her. That wasn't Seven of Nine. And I will continue to say that she was Sarah Connor. Yeah. She was not Seven of Nine. Second season brought her back down to who she to who we are familiar with. Yes. And I liked the, there's a key moment that just was really powerful. And it was when she was justifying why she's breaking orders. She wants to inspire. Yes. 
I thought that was really powerful. And it was also a philosophical nugget as well. As some people believe that inspiration, inspiration and optimism are often paired as contingent variables. And optimism, as we know, is a key component of Star Trek at large. There was a philosopher and I believe he was a... He was a theology lecturer and his name was Dietrich Bonhoeffer, I believe is his last name. And he said the essence of optimism is that it takes no account of the present, but it is a source of inspiration, of vitality and hope where others have resigned. It enables a man to hold his head high, to claim the future for himself and not to abandon it to his enemies. So I like that because in a lot of philosophical circles, inspiration and optimism are tied together. Oh, yeah, because like, especially like if they want to strengthen, they want to strengthen the idea of Starfleet and they want to get away from like what you what I think all of us as Star Trek fans for since we started Picard have been rallying against is like this negativity around the idea of Starfleet. That's how you do it. Philosophically, you have to focus on the inspirational and the the hopefulness that that brings and i like the fact that basically seven brings up the fact she brings up two figures in star trek that epitomize that in janeway and picard when she basically says you two were the ones that pushed me into starfleet and i was like going yes those two are the example of what starfleet should be the current state of Starfleet is what we all are, what Matalas narratively is trying to question. He's not questioning the idea of Starfleet overall. He's just questioning, well, that idea can be corrupted over time. And currently, is the idea of Starfleet that inspirational, poignant moment? My only problem, and we'll get into, you know what, let's just talk about it then with the Shaw aspect. Um, I'm fine with Shaw and how he's essentially just a narrative obstacle. He's there just to to make sure things aren't just easy for our characters. I, you, you always yeah. need those. Uh, I call them wild cards. That's not the the technical term, foils. but that's what I call them. Yeah, foils. Yeah, you need those types of characters. Otherwise, there'll be no resistance and the characters will seemingly be able to achieve all their goals. That's not a show. So you need characters like Shaw, but my problem that I had that we talked about during our post show for Patreon is I don't want Starfleet to be painted as bad again, yes. because that did, that was the only red flag when Dr. Crusher sends the encoded message to Picard and tells him not to trust anyone nor Starfleet I kind of groaned because I don't want Starfleet to be painted into this, this parochial image of untrustworthy institutions. I understand why we did it at times. Yeah. But we need to move past that. And I un also understand that each era of Star Trek is written under the, the lens or through the lens of whatever our feelings are at the time towards our government institutions. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately that does just, I say, unfortunately for star Trek in later years, it reflects the lack of trust 
the skepticism that we have about institutions. So that's why we have this era of Star Trek Discovery, starting with Star Trek Discovery, where it's a little darker. The themes are are not as optimistic. They have tried to, again, realign those aspects in later seasons because a lot of people just weren't having it. But there's a reason why the Kelvin Timeline movies did that. There's a reason why the Kurtzman era has done that. It's because our ideas and our perceptions of the governments that control us have changed drastically. I mean, Gene Roddenberry during the era of the, the original Trek run, he took his ideology from the Kennedy and Johnson era progressive liberalism. And even though that era was completely shrouded and upheaval, there was a lot of good stuff to come of that as well. There was a lot of optimism. There was hope. There was light at the end of the tunnel with these progressive movements. And it was reflected in Star Trek's original run. And you can, you know, I'm not going to give people a history lesson, but if you look at every era of Star Trek and then look at what's going on socially and politically, you can see the governing factors. So I'm hoping that despite the fact that we're in kind of a shitty era Historically, I think we can all agree that things are fucked currently. (laughs) I'm hoping that doesn't necessarily find its way yet again into Star Trek Trek. in a form in the form of pessimism and and uh, lack of trust. Yeah. So that's all I have to say about the Shaw stuff and Beverly Crusher's warning. I don't want Starfleet to be painted the enemy again. Well, the the biggest thing that I want to ask you about the Shaw thing, because at first I'm with you, it really did bother me with the whole Beverly telling, oh, you can't trust anybody, not even Star, Starfleet. And then the way Shaw acts. But then I took a step back and I said, okay, this character of Shaw, is it unfair how he is treating the crew? Yes. How different is that of Why how is it he fair though, David? Exactly. Because like we've seen this type of character before in Star Trek and Jellico. Jellico was the same way. Mm-hmm. He was totally military, uh, military driven. Everything has to be efficient. Everything has to be by the book. That is not such a bad thing when you're thinking about like in a military purpose, right? Picard ran a ship like that too, but for not several as, seasons, but not. Yeah. For several seasons, but yeah. then he stopped. He eventually softened and became more personable. But And then in regards to how he treats Seven, the whole Borg thing, I, I want to ask you your thoughts on that one when it came to Shaw. Is like, at first I just thought, oh God, they're going to make this kind of like about like a, almost like a, a parallel for racism, right? Yeah. But he's doing it against the Borg. That's The fine. Borg is... Obviously, the most dangerous, dangerous alien that they in Star Trek that they've ever encountered. They nearly killed everybody. Now, for people who have problems or object to that, yeah, what I have to say is, how many years did it take for the general population post nine eleven for people to start trusting others from areas who come from areas that are hotbeds of terrorism? To this day, people don't trust certain individuals, certain individuals from the Middle East. So it would make sense as being imperfect as we are for someone like Shah to harbor prejudice and distrust towards 
anyone that was affiliated or I should say assimilated by the Borg. Exactly. I think that makes sense. It makes sense. That's his, that's the source of his animosity, but also, and I do like that. The fact that he also has a problem with their whole free will and attitude, (laughs) his view, despite the fact that first off, if I was Picard, I would, I would have said, all right, Shaw, I understand touche. You have some points. We do play a little fast and lose. We'll break some rules. But at the end of the day, how many times have you saved the universe (laughs) while you sit safely in your neat little cozy chair? (laughs) But see that, that, that's something that Picard would not do. (laughs) If I was Captain Picard, if you, you were, I would be more like Captain Tony Stark. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. I am. I am Iron Man. I am. I, I am the savior of the universe. (laughs) Who are you? (laughs) Who are you? So even though I understand his perspective, I also say, listen, the, these guys have saved the universe, dude. Fucking calm the fuck down. <laughs> if they ask you a favor, just do it. <laughs> but I will say overall, the aspects with Captain Shaw worked as a complication, something to frustrate the intentions and plans of our characters. It's an interesting tightrope that they're going to have to do with it. Well, and just to reiterate, the, the fact that he obviously harbors prejudice and distrust toward Borg survivors is a perfect obstacle for both Seven and Picard, Picard. particularly as it relates to the trauma and guilt that we know they both, that both characters felt, you know, when it comes to the things that they did while they were assimilated at this point it's it's a part of their characterization and defines both their strengths and potential weaknesses and insecurities. So it works. So I had no problem with it. I felt like it, it had a a perfect part to play in this show where you're dealing essentially with two X Borg. Yes. We forget sometimes about that, about Picard Picard. because he doesn't have any, you know, leftover parts on his body like seven. Well, that's why I thought that one of my favorite scenes too was actually when they brought up the fact that uh, Riker, the whole the reason why not even human anymore. Yeah. Of that. <laughs> wait till they bring that up. <laughs> but I like that scene where uh, Riker brings up the fact that about Locutus. Yeah. And they said that, Oh, that's a code name that we used while you were gone. And then Picard realizes during my time as Locutus. Yeah. And I like that moment because it really, does harken back to it makes you remember those times that yeah Picard was not human. So we only have a few moments, and I want to get to this. I want to I want to ask you a question, Dave. There was a lot of attention brought to the element of the Borg. Are we going to see the Borg resurface again? So far, they've been a part of the. F- well, for season one and season two. Yes. So are, are they going to continue that trend and make it a part of the overall aesthetic of Star Trek Picard? What's well, one of those things, dude. I mean, like at the end of season two, the Borg wanted to join Starfleet. So that was one of the questions I had going into season three is they're going to have to at least bring that continuity over. And explain that. I also don't feel like Starfleet's ready for that, though, because look exactly. at look how Shaw feels still about the Borg. 
And the and you brought up about the whole freaking Android body that Picard's in. Okay. No one brought that up. I hope they never bring it up again. In <laughs> fact, I would be okay if they completely forget about but it. But Mike, they got to. They have to. Uh, David, I'm not saying for, I, for I like have to joke say purposes. That, that is the. You know what? I'm not going to be negative. Yeah. No, I'm not going to be negative. You can't be negative. I, I can be Because negative, remember, they, you said we have to continue continuity. Well, you listen, have to let continuity the, flow. The idea of Picard being put in a golem <laughs> body. You know, when you say it, <laughs> David, I say it like that because that's how it is. It sounds stupid because it is stupid. <laughs> what they did in season one with that was one of the silliest things I've ever seen in Star Trek. And there's been some silly things in Star Trek over the years. <laughs> and now, the only now it could have worked, as I had said numerous times, if they had used it as a way to discuss, you know, phenomenology, the experience of the human. What does it mean about the human condition? Are you still human? If they posed philosophical questions. I would say what an awesome way to delve into the philosophy of human consciousness exactly. and human and the human soul. Yes. That would be brilliant, but no, <laughs> no, not even allusions to that. <laughs> but is it too late though? Is it no, too late? It's not exactly. In fact, retrospectively, Matalas could fix that yeah. by addressing it. In this season. So going back to what you were saying, Dave, yes, I feel like they should touch on it, but only if they're doing it to fix it philosophically. There you go. I mean, Star Trek is built on philosophy. That's Absolutely. that right there is a, that's why I got so angry because the idea of hu the human humanity, that's like the perfect avenue for Star Trek philosophy. And they did nothing with it. They did nothing. Yeah. All right, we have to close out, but quickly. Raffi is now a part of Starfleet Intelligence. Which is freaking cool. That's and, a cool use of her. Yes, and seemingly she's been in deep cover for quite some time, attempting to recover world-ending, I believe is the words she used, weaponry that was stolen from the Daystrom Institute. And we saw the ramifications of that theft at the tail end of the episode with the District 7, I want to say they called it. Yes. Being completely destroyed. Yeah. And in weird fashion, too. Like, I've never seen a weapon like that before. So they're going to be introducing new technology. I thought at first was like this mass. I thought it was at first a massive transporter. But I went to the wiki, and I guess it's being described as a quantum gateway. Quantum gate. Give me a second. If you could talk, I'm going to look it up. Okay. See, One second. Automatically, you tell me it's a quantum gateway. And I'm thinking, okay, so it's wormhole technology. Okay. As the La Serena approaches the recruiting center. Oh, yeah, that's right. She, she receives a, some static. Okay. Yeah. A quantum tunnel opens under the recruiting center, tearing it apart. Only for it to reform and then basically drop everything uh, above another district. Yeah. So it, it looks like it's some type of transportation gateway, right? But they yeah. used it as a weapon. As a weapon. 
to destroy something. So leave it to Star Trek to find new ways of using (laughs) normal technology and just absolutely ruining it for everybody. Yeah. Okay, Dave. So I wanted to get into this postmodernism and nostalgia and fan service and what it all means. We don't have time to get into that during our regular show. So we're going to do it for our Patreon discussion. And that's what we're going to be doing all season. Uh, Just because the, the ever changing landscape of podcasting and our own careers and schedules sometimes conflict with the amount of content we can put out. I'm limiting ourselves to an hour per show and we will cover everything Star Trek this year, but I'm going to keep them at 60 minutes, preferably 55 minutes and anything that we can't get to. I'll have to do for Patreon subscribers exclusively. So if you want the second part of our discussions, head over to patreon.com slash Rayman digital and pledge to our podcast tier. Briefly, David, 30 seconds or less. Give me your final thoughts on this episode and your RMD score, man. My final thoughts on this, it took a while. So I'm going to actually automatically right now, sit at an 89 on the episode. Okay. I really liked the episode, but I'm also very torn about the episode. We'll probably talk about it more in our uh, second part discussion, because I think when you explained about like the second part discussion, that kind of hit everything that I had concerns with. Yeah. And, but overall, I think it was a good, good premiere. I thought it was a very strong premiere. So an 89 right off the get-go, hopefully Terry Montalas continues a strong series. Okay. David, we don't have time for my final thoughts, but I will say I am giving this episode a 90% on the RMD score. Usually you're higher than me. Well, you know, as I said, my thoughts kind of are swayed by what we're going to discuss in the next uh, part of our discussion. Yeah. Okay. We will talk to everyone next week. Remember, find us wherever you listen to your podcast. Just search Star Trek from the holodeck and also subscribe to our Patreon feed, patreon.com slash Rain Man Digital. Thank you. Thank you. Live long and prosper. I couldn't help but notice your pain. My pain. It runs deep. Share it with me. End simulation.